Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens, and back to our usual, sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Pastor, it's good to have you back from vacation. Uh, Well, Nathan, it's good to be back, and for those who are listening this evening, uh, I miss talking to you, and I hope we can interact this evening. Thank you so much for allowing us to be in your home this evening. Now, we have a few questions that have come in in Pastor's absence, so we're going to start out with those. But if you have a question, please reach out to us. Please send in your question, call in with your question, and we will jump in and ask it to Pastor Murphy. This first question says, Brother Nathan, good afternoon. I sent in a question some weeks ago, and I mentioned about this preacher or teacher not using the name of God and Jesus, but he's using the Hebrew names. Well, I have a video that my son sent me with the same gentleman. He's talking about the doctrine of the rapture is false. The name of the video is... It's time to talk about the rapture. Should you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church? And it is 41 minutes long, so we are not going to play that tonight. But Pastor will give a summation and just a little bit more of the question uh, from the listener. And who are the real chosen people of God? I really would like you to listen to it in your spare time. And when Pastor Murphy returns in the will of the Lord, I would like to hear his response to the man's claim and reasoning. I'm a bit confused because based on what he's saying, it is totally contrary to what Pastor Murphy and others are teaching and preaching. Just would like him to shed some light on it for clarification. Thank you for sending in your question. And Pastor, what are your thoughts? Well, I took some time to listen to the video. It was actually about 41 minutes. And uh, I also followed up on the website. Um, It is called truthunedited.com. Uh, to see what they believed and um, who these, who this particular group was and who was the speaker. And I uh, I know several things from listening to the broadcast and listening also to the um, going on his website to find out what they believe. Uh, and I would say this. Uh, I would say, first of all, that this guy does not believe in the rapture of the church, that the church would be raptured before the tribulation. He believes the church... Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what he would call it the church. He calls it Israel would go through the tribulation period. Uh, the second thing I would say is that uh, he does not believe in what is called dispensations. He doesn't believe that there are different periods of time in which God dealt uh, with humankind uh, at, at different periods of time. And he calls it really a childish theology to believe in, in dispensational truth. Um, the other thing I would uh, say about him is that it seems very clear that he has strong uh, black nationalistic beliefs, 
one of the videos that I watched uh, had across the video that the black people are the Jewish people. Now, I need to follow that up because uh, I'm not too sure if that he was just advertising that or he meant that. So I still need to do a little bit more to follow the series that he, he has a series of messages on it. Um, um, uh, and the other thing is he seemed to have elements of Adventism in his belief because when you follow what they believe, uh, they said that we keep the Ten Commandments, all the Ten Commandments, but we put special emphasis on the Third Commandment, which has to do with the name of God. So he doesn't use the word God or Jesus. Uh, he uses the word Yeshua for Jesus and Yahuwah for God. So he is also bought into this idea that uh, there's only one name to call God. So you can't refer to God as God or Jesus as Jesus. You must use the word Yeshua or you must use the word uh, yeah, Yahuwah. And uh, so he has seemed to be part of the Yahweh group um, theology, which puts so much emphasis on the name. The Adventists put emphasis on the Sabbath. They put emphasis on the Third Commandment, while the Adventists put on the Fourth Commandment. So there seem to be some elements there. Um, in terms of what they believe, let me just quote, and then I will try to answer the question about the rapture. Uh, this is what they say uh, that I took from the website. We believe that we are redeemed to Yahuwah by the law of Moses, but through the belief in Yahshua, the Messiah, we are born again uh, believers that live by the grace of Yahweh. Yeah. So it seemed to me that he's trying to combine faith in the uh, trust in the law plus Jesus as a means of salvation. And then he brings in grace as well. So he seemed to be trying to uh, mesh or synchronize grace, the law, and Christ together as the basis of salvation. And does that give you true salvation? Oh, no, the law, you can't get saved by the law. If there was a law that uh, you could be saved, Christ died in vain. And the Bible makes it quite clear there was no law that can save anybody. But I'm just quoting directly. The what I just gave you is directly from their, their website. Number two, uh, they also said, we believe that, uh, that our true problem is not the actual man or woman themselves but by the spirits, principalities, or demons that currently have dwelling within. So the problem with man, that man is demonized, okay? Uh, and clearly from what they're teaching, uh, man is in the condition because he's possessed by demons. So I suppose this would be a deliverance ministry. Uh, and that shocked me as well, because the Bible says the problem with man is sin. It's not that we are demonized. The problem with man is sin. Uh, another thing that they said was this. We do believe that all who believe in Yahushua, whether Jew or Gentile, are grafted into Israel. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that. We are grafted into the body of Christ, the church. So they take the church and they displace the church with Israel. And that's why I need to do a little bit more, see what other videos they have on online. Uh, and the reason why you're grafted into Israel is so that we can receive the promises of Abraham. Right. Now, we're under the new covenant, not under the old covenant. So there's some confusion here about um, this matter between Jew and the church. Then they said another thing. We believe that you can lose your crown or your salvation. So they do not believe in eternal security. And then another thing that it said, we keep all the commandments. Now, you can't keep all the commandments. Nobody's able to keep all the commandments. But we keep all the commandments, but especially the third commandment, by calling or created by his true name, Yahushua, and the Messiah, yeah, uh, um, um, Yahushua. So Yahuwah and Yahushua. 
the Messiah is Yahusha and the, the, the God of the Old Testament is Yahuwah. And this is how we um, we honor the Creator by using the correct name. It's like the people today who tell you you can't use the word God, you've got to use the word Yahweh or some other Jewish name. So he has a mixture of the Yahweh movement, the Adventist movement, and black nationalist movement, and uh, also clearly... Uh, he has some elements of this deliverance movement, which where everything is a spirit behind everything. That is fundamentally what they believe. Now, coming to what he um, said about the rapture, the first thing he did in the video was to mention that the word rapture does not occur in the Bible. We all knew that. Uh, the word that is used in Thessalonians is that we should be caught up or we should be snatched away. And the word uh, that is used in the Latin for that word is the word raptura. And when they were translating the 1611, they used the word rapture instead of the word snatch away. So while the word rapture is not literally in the Bible, the concept is there, being snatched away or caught up. So that was a non-point for me. It's like saying that the word Trinity is not in the yeah. Bible, therefore there's no Trinity. You know, uh, <laughs> or um, th- there's no word, um, um, uh, think of another word, like, it doesn't come to mind exactly that, uh, people might use today to describe oh uh, the word hypostatic union uh, of Christ. It doesn't mean that there's not two natures in Christ. Uh, there's human nature, but the theological term that is used is the hypostatic union. So because that is not in the Bible, does that mean he doesn't have two natures? These are just theological terms that we use to describe what the Bible gives us. Uh, the other thing that he did um, is that he went through to explain reasons why people believe in the rapture, and he gave some very good reasons why people believe in the rapture. And then he said, uh, after doing that, he said, but there's no clear matter of interpretation and that there is some uncertainty as far as the un- interpretation is concerned. The third thing he did is he went into the uh, the church fathers and showed that Tertullian, Hamus, Hermus, and uh, Irenaeus, uh, three church fathers, did not believe that the church would escape the tribulation. They believed that Christ would come back, but the church would be, he would come back when the church is going through the tribulation. But what he did not mention is that there are about four church fathers who did believe in the pre tribulation rapture. So he was very selective in the church fathers that he chose to, to highlight. He credits the whole rapture movement to J.N. Darby. Uh, who was the one that propounded this theory in, in 1826 and was the one responsible for spreading it in Europe and coming to America and spreading it. So he believed that J.N. Darby was the one that came up uh, in modern times. Um, to cre- and then he also mentioned Reverend uh, Edward Irving in 1877, who wrote two volumes, The Coming of the Messiah in Majesty and Glory, and uh, he, he mentioned the end of the world, the apostasy of the church, the restoration of Israel, and the imminent return of Christ. So he linked uh, Darby and Irving as the ones that um, pushed this uh, rapture concept. Then he seemed to be a conspiracist as well, because he he points out that uh, during this period of time, um, the Rochelle, Rochelle family, uh, along with other rich uh, people, were trying to promote um, the recreation of the nation of Israel. And he believes that somehow it was these rich people that um, um, tried to influence the church um, 
uh, about Israel and the restoration of Israel, and that they want to plant Israel as a, a, a state and recreate the doctrine of Israel. So there seemed to be some element that he believes that um, these rich people were the ones that were pulling the strings along with this same theology about the rapture. And he believed that the rapture really was to create a division between Israel and the church. That's, that's the real reason why the people came up with the rapture, to make a distinction between Israel and the church. And um, he mentions uh, James Brooks, A.J. Gordon, and, and uh, Schofield as the ones that started pushing this particular movement. And, uh, of course, linked with that is the whole question of dispensations, God dealing with man at different periods of time. To make a long story short, uh, he does not believe that there's any clear teaching in the Bible about the, the, the doctrine of the rapture. He does not believe in dispensationalism. Uh, he, he thinks that that is a kooky idea. Um, he does not believe that the tribulation, uh, pre-tribulation is based on truth. And he says these words that if you believe in the, tri- pre, uh, the pre-tribulation rapture, it leaves you uh, with people deceived and hopeless. Now, how does that uh, leave people deceived and hopeless? Because the rapture is given as the great hope of the church. Right. So I, that's why i got to read a little bit more about him. And then he said, those who follow this doctrine are part of those who will, be, uh, who will, uh, will, be, who will bring in the rule of the Antichrist. So if you believe in the, in the pre-tribulation rapture, somehow you are part of the conspiracy to bring in the Antichrist. Again, that doesn't make any sense to me. And then he said uh, the rapture prepared the world for the coming false kingdom. Uh, again, I don't know how in the world he, he, uh, he, he makes that connection. So I would say, having examined what um, he has said on the video, um, the 41 minutes, and having um, examined some of the videos that he had there, I still need to do a little bit more digging. But clearly... Um, his interpretation of the Bible is different than ours, and he has a right to say you don't believe in the rapture or the pre-tribulation rapture. That is his, but he has no uh, particular corner on the truth as, as regard to this matter. If the rapture is a biblical doctrine, we don't. It doesn't matter if it is Darby or if it is Brooks or if it's Schofield that push it. The question is, is it a biblical doctrine? And we can. Uh, I hope you can probably mention the. Uh, the session we had so that people could understand why we believe in the rapture. Um, but this guy clearly is a, a, a proponent of a different teaching. Uh, I, he believes the believer will go through the, tribu- the, go through the tribulation period, and that is completely different uh, than we within the, the Baptist faith and within the evangelical community. Oh, one other thing that he kept saying is that the established church believes in the rapture. That's not true. The established church is the Anglican Church, the Lutheran Church, the Reformed Church, uh, and the Presbyterian. None of those believe in the rapture. They believe in the post-tribulation. They believe are millennial, so they don't have any, any place for the rapture at all. So I think he, he's not aware of his... Uh, either he's uh, thinking that the evangelical church is the standard church today, or the established church, but that's not the established church. The established church is the Anglican church, the Catholic church, the Reformed church, the Presbyterian. Those are the established churches, and they don't believe in a rapture. They believe in the second coming, but they believe the saints will go through the tribulation period, or that the church will create a millennium down here before Christ returns. 
So it's something completely different. If you're interested in listening to two entire episodes that are focused on the topic of the rapture and being explained, you can go to That's Truth Podcast. You can just Google that, That's Truth Podcast, and choose your preferred provider, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast. Or you can go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo that you see. It's a photo of a broadcast microphone, just like the one that I am speaking into. When you see that broadcast microphone right in the middle of the screen, the center of the screen, there's going to be a circle that says podcast. Click on that. And then the first podcast that is listed is That's Truth. Click on the archive link and or previous episodes link and you can go to all previous 250 260 episodes that we have had and look for episode number 95 and 96 95 and 96 and those aired the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020 so you're going to have to scroll a ways back but it's entitled the rapture explained and details of the rapture explained and again that has a lot more information and actual verses where pastor is backing up the biblical view of the pre-tribulational rapture now, before we, uh, yeah, go ahead, Nathan. I wanted to uh, suggest to anyone that's listening some good books on the actual rapture if they want to do a study on, on the rapture. So I just want to mention several of these books that they can get online. Uh, there's a book called The Rapture Question by uh, Dr. John Walverd uh, that will discuss that. There's a rapture by Hal Lindsay as well that would uh, help to deal with that. And then there's one by Ed Hinson and Mark Hitchcock, Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? That's the title of the book. Uh, Charles Wary has written one, What Should You Know About the Rapture? And then there's one by Reynolds Showers called Maranatha. And uh, The Rapture of the Saints by Dr. Herbert Lockyer is another good book. And then The Rapture by Dr. Ken Johnson. So those are seven different books that uh, I would recommend uh, if, of these books. Uh, the one by uh, Walverd, he's an excellent scholar. And uh, the one by uh, Ed Henson and, and Mark Hitchcock. H- Mark Hitchcock in particular is an excellent writer on, on the prophetic matters. I would recommend that. Shower's book is very good as well, Maranatha. Those three. <clears throat> but... They're worth looking into, and if you get them on the internet, on Kindle, it's a lot cheaper than if you buy it in the hard copy. If you are just tuned in and you are saying, wait, Pastor Murphy is back, I've got a question. Yes, he is back. We are glad to have him back. And you can call and ask your question live on the air by dialing one 268 Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to one. 1- Two six eight seven eight two one four five four, or join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then in the comment section, while you're listening to the program and watching behind the scenes, you can comment your question. No matter how you're joining us, we are thankful that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening. And again, let me encourage you. Invite someone else to tune in. We still have 
an hour and 10 minutes left in this episode, so plenty of time. Go ahead in the next couple of minutes, send someone a WhatsApp, a text message, and notify them that That's Truth is live on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, and we would love for them to interact with us. They can ask any question, and Pastor will answer it from a biblical worldview. Now, Pastor, before we go on to the next question, a couple of questions that came to my mind as you were talking uh, I know you don't want to make an emphatic statement that this group that put out this video believe that the blacks are the true Jews. But there are that's a topic that has come up multiple times here on the program. And for those who have just tuned in, what's the biblical view? Are the blacks the true Jews? One of the great myths of our time is the pushing of this particular ideology. It's a false ideology. and There's no biblical basis for it. There's no historical base for it. Um, and, and again, prophetically, it is such a silly thing that I can't believe that people so intelligent who have an open Bible would believe that. The Bible made it quite clear that the Jews would be returned to the land of Palestine just before our Lord returns. Ezekiel twenty six twenty four talks about that. That's where they are. The nation of Israel, which was not a nation for 2,000 years, became a nation in 1948. I think it was October 14th. So the idea that uh, and, uh, who are the Jews are who are in Palestine right now. And, of course, they've got the Jewish diaspora in different parts of the world. But those Jews came back from every single corner of the globe, as the Bible predicted, they would return. Those are what, who, who the Jews are. So I don't know. I, I think what has happened is that there's a black nationalistic movement that started the Rastafarian movement as well that has caused the Rastas to believe that they're the Jews as well. And if you look at the people who formulated this doctrine, these are not people that were theologians or people that were knowledgeable of the history of the Jewish people. These are people who had a theory and uh, in order to get that theory, and the idea to, you know, the idea of uh, the slavery, because blacks were enslaved, uh, they're just thinking, and they don't realize that uh, Israel was enslaved, so they think that because they, they equate and conflate Israel enslavement with African enslavement, which has nothing to do because the Africans were never um, driven out of Israel. They were never populated Israel. And uh, by the way, there's a very simple way to prove that that's not true. The effigies of Jewish conquer- the people when they were conquered and, and the, the pictures they have depicted and the drawings and stuff like that, you can see they're clearly not Africans. It makes no sense at all to me. I don't know how anybody can believe this. But, and again, uh, Nathan, I would say this, people today talk about cultural misappropriation, and this is cultural misappropriation because uh, because of this claiming that they are the true Israelites, there's a lot of hostility towards the Jews. Uh, I, I, I was uh, anti-Semitism is so high now in America, a lot of it has to do that they're, be, they're, they're being told that they are trying to appropriate Jewishness, which really belongs to black. It's a complete reversal. But I don't know how any intelligent person within the knowledge of the Bible could actually believe this. There's no biblical basis for it whatsoever. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm struck that we in the Caribbean, who have Bible knowledge for so long, would ever entertain the idea. Uh, and I don't know why it is being pushed in, in that area. Uh, there's no connection between the black people and the Jewish people. And blacks have never claimed to be Jews. It's only now in modern times they've ever claimed to be the Jewish people. But that's a misunderstanding, and I think it's a cultural misappropriation. And I think it is fa- I th- believe it is false. There's no biblical base for it. And I think it can be logically, rationally, historically, intellectually shown that it, it's not true. 
absolutely not true. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.55. If you have a question, you can call and ask it 268-462-7420 or WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. One other question before we move on, Pastor. Why are there so many religions if you say that Christianity or the Bible is the only true religion? Sorry, what are you saying? Why are there so many religions Mm -hmm. if you say the Bible is the only true religion or Christianity? How can you make that statement? Well, the the thing you've got to recognize is that you're dealing here with two major supernatural forces, one that's leading to light, one that's leading to darkness. The one that's going to eventually end up in darkness in Gehenna, of course, is what we call Satan the devil. He's the master of deception. Uh, our Lord made that quite clear from the Old Testament. He's called the father of lies. Now, if you knew you were doomed and your doom was uh, incorrigible, uh, you couldn't um, be salvaged, uh, that's exactly what he's trying to do now because he knows his doom is certain and he, there's no way he can be saved salvifically. He's doomed. He is, his whole plan is to uh, destroy humankind and besmirch the name of God and bring disrepute to his name. So he has created, he's the, they call him the ape of God. He has created uh, religion to create the massive confusion so that people move away from the truth. And, and that's what is happening today. Uh, people today are believing such weird teaching that I am finding it almost impossible to think that how have we gotten to this stage? Not only the transgender, not only that homosexuals is normal, not only that lesbianism is normal, but in the area of theology, they've embraced the Eastern ideas that Christianity destroyed for centuries, like reincarnation. Reincarnation is not biblical, it's not scriptural. There's resurrection, not reincarnation. But every major religion outside of Islam uh, today have in it the belief in, in reincarnation. Uh, I can't think of a modern religion, whether it be the Hindu or those that spin off from Hinduism that believe in reincarnation. So I think the way to understand what is happening today is that the devil knows his time is short, the end is short, and his whole plan is to destroy and to lie and to deceive. And he has created a lot of these false religions uh, that we have today so that the world ends up in a state of confusion and people are actually saying, well, what do you believe? My answer to those people who ask that question is this, go back to Scripture and let the Scripture be the standard by which you make your decision as to what is truth and what is not truth. Do not entertain rhetoric or oratory or people who are skilled in communication uh, that's not the key. The key to it is the Scriptures. What does the Scriptures say on these matters? And it doesn't matter whether a person is eloquent, whether he's, he's brainy or he's smart, he's intellectual, or he's a good communicator. And, and uh, don't be mesmerized by his words. Be mesmerized by the truth that he shows you from God's Word. That should be the sibilant by which you judge right or wrong and to decide which religion is true. But I think behind this whole uh, prefola uh, of religions you see today is a mastermind that is designed to create such confusion that the world finds it hard to know what is truth any longer. That's where we are today, Nathan. And I think it cannot be explained in human terms. You've got to understand who is behind this whole darkness that the Bible talks about. 
Our next question comes from Texas via WhatsApp. Hello, brothers. Can you please explain Revelation 20 and verse 4? Revelation 20 and verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Pastor are the thrones going to be for the saints or disciples? Well, let's um, see what the Bible teaches on this matter because the Bible does mention uh, several different passages that there are different groups that will share on this throne. For example, Nathan, if you look at, first of all, in, in Revelation 24, 20 verse 5, what does it say? Revelations 20 and verse 5? Uh-huh. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Right. So if you look at verse 4 and verse 25, uh, verse 4 and 5, it's talking about the tribulation saints, those that were beheaded. and Those are the ones that are reigning with him. So we know that one of the groups that are going to be sitting on the throne would be the tribula- some tribulation saints. But also if you look at Matthew chapter, um, look at Luke 29, verse 29 to 30. Luke... 29, 29 to 30. Uh, it's only 24 chapters in Luke. Okay. Uh, we'll look at, Ma- oh. look at Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 19 and verse 28. I'll get my fingers to work here to I scroll down. 1928 says, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So clearly he's referring to the disciples sitting on twelve thrones. And of course, he's talking about the disciples were part of the church. Remember that. So he's talking about the saints. So you've got the tribulation saints mentioned, and you also got here that he promised that the disciples would sit on the twelve thrones, judging the, uh, Israel. And then look at first, uh, Second Timothy 2.12. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12 says... If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So it makes very clear that believers who suffer for the cause of Christ, they will be part of the ones who would reign. So when you combine all of this, basically, you're talking about the tribulation saints. You're talking about the saints who suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ and don't deny him. And you're also talking about the uh, the the disciples being part of this who would rule on the throne. So um, to answer the question quite clearly, there are the tribulation saints, there are the disciples uh, who will sit on the throne, and there's also the believer who suffer with Christ, who is going to reign with him. So those on the throne are the saints. And the three specific categories that the Bible mentioned are the tribulation saints, the disciples, and also those that suffer for Christ. That would be my answer to that question. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.03. If you're listening to the rebroadcast of this on Saturday afternoon, or maybe you're listening to the podcast on another day of the week, we're glad you're listening, and you can still interact with us. You can WhatsApp or text your question to the following number, and in the next live episode, Pastor will answer your question from a biblical perspective. Send your question via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1111. 
888-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. You can call and ask your question live on the air if it is Tuesday evening that you're listening to us. And Sister Marianne will answer your call and then put you on hold and I will put you live on the air with Pastor Murphy. You can call 1-268-462-7420. A comment that has come in in relation to the rapture. This comes from Montserrat. Good night, gentlemen. I read a book in 1995. It was just the rapture, and it was written by Ellen G. White, and it really put a scare in me. I always remembered it. Pastor, are you familiar with her writing a book? Well, Ellen G. White, uh, as you know, is the Seventh-day Adventist. They do not believe in a rapture. They uh, they don't believe in Israel in, in the first case. They believe in the second coming. So uh, she must have interpreted that to mean the revelation. Okay. But clearly the Adventists are not advocates of the rapture. They're advocates of the second coming, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not too sure. I've never read the book by Ellen G. White. I haven't uh, uh, if only I think I only have in my possession the what is called the Great Controversy, but I don't have any other book by her. But she is the the proponent of the Adventist faith, and I know one thing that they don't have any place for Israel in the in their prophetic eschatology. So I would be surprised that she would have alluded to the Rapture. I think she's probably referring to the Revelation, the Great Terror that will take place. But uh, that's under that's just speaking without having the full knowledge of reading the book itself. A question that has come in in your absence. If God knows everything, why did he allow Satan to create mischief in heaven and then allow man to side with Satan? I don't think God knows everything. Well, if you don't think God knows everything, you've got a finite God. And the Bible makes it quite clear that God is infinite. So you're you're clashing with Scripture— and I would suggest to you that you might have a God that is made in your image, but not in the image that the Bible presents him. So you either have to rethink your theology, or you are not, uh, you are not um, honoring the God of the Bible that says that he's, 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 he's infinite. Um, let me use some verses here to show you uh, how wise God is. Uh, look at Psalm 147, verse 5. Psalm 147, uh, Psalm 147, verse 5, verse 5, says, Great is our Lord, and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Again, I think, how do you, how do you explain that verse and, and have an idea that he doesn't know everything? His understanding is infinite. Uh, the The Bible tells us also that Look at Psalm 33, verse 13 to 15. Psalm 33. Yeah, he knows man, and he knows man's work. Psalm 33, verse 13 to 15, 33. The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. Right, and then if you look at uh, Psalm 139, so he knows the works of man, he knows man. Look at Psalm 139, verse 1 to 4. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path 
and my lying down, and art acquainted with all my ways, for there is not a word in my tongue. But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. That is infinite knowledge that he even knows our thoughts. Uh, not just our actions, not our, our activities, but he knows our thoughts. That uh, speaks of the infinite wisdom of God. And then not only that, he knows things that are possible. Look at First Samuel 23, verse 11 to 12. First Samuel 23, 11 to 12 says, Will men of Kaliah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord saith, he will come down. And verse 12 says, Then said David, Will the men of Kaliah deliver me? And my men into the hand of Saul, and the Lord said, they will deliver thee up. So here's David wanting to know, Lord, should I stay here, or are these people are going to deliver me? God said, I know they're going to deliver you, so you better escape. He knows what is possible before it even happens. He knows what people would do even before it happens. Clearly, he knows the, the things. And then, he also knows the future. Um, look at um, Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10 reads as follows. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So he knows the beginning from then. He plans. But then if you go to the Bible, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, he gives a whole sketch of human history from the Babylonian captivity until Christ returns to set up his kingdom. And he tells us exactly what kingdoms will come, what kingdoms will fall. Uh, He has that. And then in Matthew chapter 24, our Lord is able to predict what will take place uh, during the tribulation period just before he returns. So uh, to say that you don't believe that God knows everything is to diminish God and his character and his attributes. And you may be worshiping a false God because the God of the Bible is an infinite God, not a finite God. So um, I think you need to either change your thinking, repent of your thinking, uh, you can't believe in the Bible and believe in a limited God who is finite. That is very clear. Now, the, the other question you asked me, uh, if God knows everything, why did he? That's one of the great mysteries that we have. I would like to know that question as well, but there's something that God has not revealed to us. And the book of Deuteronomy says that the things that God has revealed to us belong to us sons and our daughters, but the thing that there are certain things that he has not revealed. And while we like to probe into this area, uh, the Bible doesn't give us an explanation as to why God allowed this and why God allowed that. I can only speculate uh, from a, a theological perspective. One would be that God creates every being with a free will. And if he's created like God, he has to be created with free will because God has free will. And I think that was the case uh, with Satan. Uh, I think everything that happens is for God's glory. Somehow, all of this uh, catastrophe that took place with the fall, when it comes to its denouement and its conclusion, uh, God will receive greater glory. And the other thing I've said many times on this broadcast, I believe that the fall of man is involved in somehow God elevating man to a higher level where he becomes more Christ-like. And I think that uh, he, this is how man will be elevated, not to godhood, but to God-likeness. 
And I believe that this is why uh, the fall um, happened as well. But God permitted it. And in his own wisdom, he knows why he's allowed it to happen. We human beings cannot fully comprehend God's mind and God's thoughts and God's purpose. So we've got to live in trust and believe in that the God of the earth will do right. And God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempted the man to do any evil. Uh, so we believe in a holy God. We do believe in a God who also has created uh, every creature with a, a will. And we also believe that whatever has taken place, uh, God has not. Um, God is not the author of sin. Let me put it that way. In any moment you charge God with sin, you have violated and vitiated uh, His character. But again, there are mysteries on, as to why certain things were allowed. And we just have to live by faith, believing that one day we'll come to comprehend and understand more fully what God's plan was, what His design was in allowing the fall. But we can't go beyond Scripture, otherwise we go into the realm of speculation, which is always dangerous. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you to each who have sent in questions already tonight or over the past couple of weeks. And we are looking forward to hearing Pastor give an answer. If you have a question, we would like for you to interact with us. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 one four five four. Pastor, we have a call on the line. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. We're listening. All right. Go ahead and call back, and we will put you on the air. Thank you for calling in. Uh, while we wait for you to call back, let me just share the other ways you can interact with us. You can email your question to crlthatstruth at gmail.com. crlthatstruth at gmail.com. You can also join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can while you're listening to the program and watching behind the scenes, you can comment and your question will get passed along to Pastor Murphy. Good evening and thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. All right. We will try and get that sorted out on our end. If you want to call back, ask Sister Marianne what your question in is, and she will pass it along to you. I'm sorry for any technical issues that we are having on our end, and we will attempt to resolve that as well as we can during a live episode. Pastor, we have a question that came in. Um, are there really two meanings in Greek for divorce? In Ezra chapter 10, in Ezra 10 account, you will say the marriages were legal and so they gave them a bill of divorce? That was a question. Brother Murphy, as verse 11 uses the word separate or put away, will you say that is divorce since the word is not mentioned? And are there are the two the same? Well, first of all, uh, you you ask if there are two different words for divorce in the uh, Greek, and then you gave a reference to Ezra, which is not written in Greek but written in Hebrew. 
So you've got me a little bit confused. Um, what what you really meant there? Um, I'm a little bit confused. As you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and there are sections in, written in Aramaic, very small sections written in Aramaic, especially the Book of Daniel. But the, uh, it's the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, in regards to the <coughs> New Testament, the word for divorce uh, in the New Testament is the word apoluo. Um, it means to let loose from or to let go free. It comes from apoluo, the word apo, which means from, and luo, which means to loose. Uh, it's often translated in the Revised Version as to put away. So that's basically what it means, to let loose, let the person go free, to put the person away. This word is used in Matthew 5.32. Can you read that, Nathan? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32 says, But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. See that word put away? <clears throat> it's the same word, apolu, to set free, to let go. <clears throat> same word. It's the same word also found in Matthew one nineteen. Could you read that as well? <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 19 says, <clears throat> Then Joseph... Her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. Again, it's the same word, apoluo, that's used there. And in Matthew 18, when our Lord is dealing with a similar matter, if you look at verse 3. Matthew chapter 18 and verse number. Matthew 19 and verse 3. Yeah, and then verse 7 to 9. Okay. Matthew 19, verse 3 says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying, Put him, or saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? See the word there, put away? It's the same word, apoludo. Put away his wife for every cause. And then skipping down to... Verse 7 to 9. 7 to 9 says, They say unto him, Why did Moses then command him to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away. And he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but not from the beginning. It was not so. Right. All of those verses, the, the, the one Greek word that is used there, the word apoluo, which means to let loose from, to let go free, or is translated put away, but this one Greek word. There is another word that is used for the bill of divorcement. And that's the word apatuson, and that is found in uh, Matthew 5.31. Matthew 5.31 says, It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife shall let, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Right, that's, that's the other Greek word there. And that word, by the way, means to stand away from. Uh, and you also find it in 19, verse 7. Matthew 19 and verse number 7 says, They say unto <coughs> him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? See, it's the word apatusian. So if you want to say the two words, one word is for divorce and the other word is for the bill of divorce, the two Greek words. It's fascinating, Nathan, that in the Septuagint, um, you know, Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And uh, that, by the way, is the Bible that Christ would have had 
during uh, his journey here. That is why a lot of the quotations in the New Testament are not from the Masoretic text. It's from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. But it's interesting that this same word, um, a bill of divorcement, is the same word that's used in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 3, that has to do with divorce in the Old Testament. Because remember that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word, same word in the New Testament, is the same word used there dealing with divorce, which means, quite frankly, to stand off from or to let, let free. So to answer the person's question, if, you, if you're looking for, uh, in the Greek language, the word divorce is the word apoluo, and the word bill of divorcement is the word apatusian. And those are two different words. One means to let loose or to let go. The other one means to stand off from, basically. Those are the two words. Now, in terms of the reference that she made in um, uh, Ezra, was it Ezra? Yes, Ezra 10. Ezra. Uh, if I recall the story correctly, is when um, it was made known that the Jews had intermarried with the um, the pagans and the Gentiles, and um, it was necessary for Ezra to separate them. And uh, as a matter of fact, if you remember the story, he, he grabbed people by the hair, right, quite frankly, and said, how in the world you can do this when the law had told you, quite frankly, that you shouldn't intermarry with the pagans because what would happen? They'll turn your heart away from God. It had nothing to do. It's not racial. It's not ethnic. It was something spiritual that he was concerned about. Uh, but again, that would have been when he put them away there is the same word would have used for divorce them basically that would have divorced them that would be the reference in, in, in Ezra it's the same uh, word that would be used in that in that text uh, Ezra ten eleven to give yeah. context there says now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives right so that would be put in the way of the strange wives which were Pagans, and we we know from the book of um, um, Kings that Solomon, in his old age, with all of his wisdom, because of the inter- political intermarriage and having all of these women, that the Bible tells us in his old age that these women turned them turned his mind away from God, and he actually built uh, temples to the gods of his wives, and the Bible warns this is what. It's going to happen if there's you don't remain separate as spiritual people and you intermarry with the pagans. It's going to result in <coughs> dysfunctional religion and turning your heart away from God to follow into idolatry. Time across the <coughs> Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 821. Thank you for sending in your questions. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one two six eight seven eight two one four. Five four. If you don't have WhatsApp or a text, you can call the following number, and Sister Marianne will get your question and then type it out to me as we seem to be having some technical issues with putting you live on the air tonight. Again, call Sister Marianne at 268-462-7420. And to the caller who called in earlier and we were unable to put you on, Go ahead and give Sister Marianne a call or send in your question via WhatsApp or text, and we will deal with your question. Appreciate you uh, dealing, working with us on these less than optimal situation. A WhatsApp message that came from the Southern Caribbean. Was, did you have anything else you wanted to mention? No, I just wanted to make the—I uh, hope I answered the question successfully to the person who sent it in. 
A WhatsApp question from the Southern Caribbean. Good night. How do you know what your gifts and talents are? That's a great question. I think there are many, many people, many of us who have had that question at some point. What are your thoughts, Pastor? Well, I I think we need to make a distinction between gifts and talents. Uh, I, I suspect the person is referring to her spiritual gifts and then her talents. But talents are natural endowments that we have. Uh, we are born certain ways. Uh, I remember one time seeing a picture of a, a young African guy who had gone to London, never been to uh, art school, but he was able to sketch all the buildings, you know, in these ornate buildings you find in England, it was fascinating. I think he eventually got a scholarship or something, but that was a gift. I've seen a little boy that is about five years old play some of the most classical music in the world. I'm saying, but how in the world can you do that? I'm old, I can't even, I can't even play a note. There are people who are naturally born with certain talents, no question about that. I think in terms of my own family, uh, on my wife's side, music runs in the, in, the, in the thing. Delon could play the guitar, John could play the guitar, now Eliana. Uh, she's fascinated with the guitars but it seems as though that runs you'll also find that sometimes people with certain skills like doctors you'll find that it runs in the family etc etc engineers seem to run in the family that is a talent but when we talk about spiritual gifts you're talking about endowments uh, special uh, endowments that God gives us when the person becomes converted and the person becomes saved every single believer every single born again believer is endowed with at least one gift and that gift is given for the advancement and the growth and the development of the church. And the individual is to serve using that gift and that special ability. So when it comes to gift, it is a God-given ability for Christian service uh, that we need to be aware of. Now, when you're going to the Bible, uh, there are at least 19 different gifts. When you take all the list of gifts that are mentioned in Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 3 to 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 4 to 14, and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 to 11. These are the three main chapters that kind of summarizes the different gifts. And when you take all of those uh, gifts that are mentioned in these three chapters and you uh, put them together, you'll find at least uh, 19 of them. There's the gift of administration, the gift of apostle, gift of discernment, gift of evangelism, gift of exhortation, gift of faith, gift of giving, gift of healing, gift of helps, gift of hospitality, gift of knowledge, gift of leadership, gift of mercy, mercy, gift of prophecy, gift of serving. Uh, then the speaking in tongues gift, there's the uh, teacher's gift, the gift of wisdom, the gift of interpretation of tongues, the gift of discernment. You'll find that there are 19 gifts that I mentioned. Now, are these all the gifts uh, all the spiritual gifts? I don't think so. I just think Paul was summarizing. And remember that you, you dealt with it in Corinthians and, and Ephesians. And if you understood the different uh, conditions and situations within there, I think Paul is just highlighting those gifts that were manifested within uh, the church at that time. Now, the, the question is, uh, how do you... Uh, discover uh, these gifts and try to come to an understanding what gift you are. I would just want to make some suggestions to you because um, I am not too sure that there's any particular passage in the Scripture that gives you the how to discover the gifts. So I'm going to suggest to you some practical things that would help you in this matter. First of all, uh, to pray to find, see if God will reveal to you what that gift is. Certainly if God has given you a gift and you want to know what that gift is, 
and your intention in discovering this gift that He has given to you has to be, I will say this, to render service within His church. So if you're not interested in rendering service within the church, there's no use of asking Him for the gift. What, what is the gift that they gave you? Because that's the reason for the gifts, to edify the body of Christ and to build up the church. Remember that the church is not a human institution. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And every single gift that has been given by God is designed to edify and build up the church in some way or some form. So that's the first thing I'd tell you to do is um, to uh, pray about it. The second thing I'd is I would ask my friends, my, my friends um, within the church, who I move with, um, you know, uh, what do you think my gift is? They might pick up things that you have particular uh, a particular gift of doing something or saying something or ministering in some way that you may not be very conscious of, and they may open that door. You probably never saw it that way. But I would, if I have good friends, good Christian friends who have my welfare in mind and who know that I'm searching to know what God's will in respect to this matter, I would say to them, what do you think my gift is? Uh, what does it seem to be my gift? And you might be surprised that they will tell you certain things that you are not cognizant of. That's the second thing I would say. The third thing I would suggest is that there are some spiritual gift inventories that um, Bible Teachers and people who have studied the Word have come up with certain categories using the gifts in the Scriptures and uh, what particular uh, qualities would be necessary to fall within the gift. There are some very good ones. We have one uh, in our church. We haven't used it for a while, but I find it very, very useful in helping to see what category you fit in. What it does basically is take the spiritual gift, list if this, this is your gift. These are things that should be part of that gift, and then ask you to to, to, to kind of list, and then you, there's a set of numbers that you, you check up, and then by the end you will have an idea. It's a basic um, skill uh, that is uh, formed that is used, but I find it can be very, very helpful. And then the other thing I think is vitally important is what does the church think is your gift? Because if the gift is to be used within the church, God's people should be able to discern as you interact and you get involved in ministry to say, look, I think you'll work well with children. It's very, very clear this is to be your gift. Or you've got the gift of preaching. Or you've got the gift of exhortation. Or you've got the gift of helps. You've got the gift of communication. You've got the gift of um, knowledge. I think that ultimately the final test of what your real gift is is the endorsement of the church as to what God has given to you because it's to be used within the church. And then, of course, you could probably ask your pastor and the deacons, uh, what do you think is my gift? Observing me, be honest with me now, and uh, um, just tell me what. Those are just some practical things I think if you were to follow that would be very helpful in, in knowing what your gift is. But there'd be no doubt that once you start using that gift, that it will be picked up within the church that you were endowed with a special gift because the church is just like preaching. I don't think any man should preach and say he's called to preaching unless the church endorses him because it's the ministering in the church that the people sense that this is the gift that God has given to you. So don't just jump into a gift believing that you've got the gift without uh, trying to get the affirmation of the church in regard to this matter. Thank you for sending in that question. Another question that has come in, when we repent of our sins, 
to God, do we also have to give an account for all those sins on Judgment Day? Would God tell us of all our sins on Judgment Day? Well, again, the only way to answer this question would be to turn to Scripture and see what the Bible says about this matter. And there are several verses of Scripture that indicates that when God forgives us, he wipes the record clean and that he remembers them no more. He buries them. So let's, let's see what the Scripture says. Look at Psalm 103, verse 12. Psalm 103, verse 12. And while I'm turning there, I've got to say amen, and I'm thankful that God does that. <laughs> I have too. <laughs> Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now the question is this, how far is the east and the west? Infinite. There's no, there's no, it's an infinite. There's a North Pole and a South Pole, but it's no East and West. So what, that's the way of biblical, it's a kind of a um, metaphor, uh, really, to explain to you that there's no limit. Uh, God has removed our transgression, and in the way he's placed them, it's, it's infinite, quite frankly. So he dealt with the sin problem once and for all. Then look at Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah... Chapter 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. I don't think there can be anything of a greater clarity. Now remember that he's speaking to Israel in this case before Christ even shed his blood. Now remember what the, what the blood means now, quite frankly. So the, the sin problem has been dealt with on the cross. Christ died for all sin. Sins past, sins present, sins in the future. He has completely died for those sins. So when a person faith and trust in Christ and repent of their sins, these sins are completely obliterated and forgiven and forgotten. And then look at Jeremiah 31, verse 34. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And the least of them, and the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Again, this is part of the promise that Jeremiah made under the new covenant. And of course, as believers, we are in the new covenant. And notice that their sins will I remember no more. Uh, and then look at First John one seven. First John one seven says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. I don't think it can be clearer than that, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. So when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the sin matter is dealt with once and forever. And then the last one, Micah seven eighteen. Micah seven eighteen says... Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. 
yeah. Of course, that's again speaking about his compassion on Israel. But I remember that the church is his special people, and if he was so compassionate and willing to pardon, forgive, and bypass all his sins in the Old Testament, imagine what it means now when his son has paid the ultimate price to bring about redemption and forgiveness and pardon. So when you take all of these verses together, you'll see that the sin question has already been dealt with. And the Bible makes it quite clear that we're going to be judged for our works, and we will either receive a reward or we will suffer loss as a result. But the believer is secure in Christ, and uh, they shall never, no, never, ever perish, the Bible says. So if it would give you any comfort, and I hope you get comfort, to know that you hold, if you put your faith and trust in Christ, your, the sin problem has been dealt with, and you can't have jeopardy, uh, double jeopardy when it comes to, to Christ. If you still have to pay for your sins, it simply means that Christ has not paid the debt, but he's paid the debt for all our sins. Now, that doesn't give you a license to sin. Uh, again, remember when you get saved, your sins are forgiven. But something else happens to you. You're not just forgiven. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. And the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make you holy and to make you more like Christ. So he begins to work in your life to transform your life so that the desire uh, to do wrong and to continue in sin, that is whittled away until you get victory after victory after victory. And there should be a progressive work of uh, sanctification happening in your life once you put your faith and trust in Christ. What would you say, Pastor, to the individual who's listening and says, I want to become a Christian, I want to become a believer, but I don't really care to become holy? Well, if you don't want holiness, I would suggest you don't want true salvation because true salvation will create holiness in you. It's not, uh, you know, when you... Uh, that's a good question, though, Nathan, because I don't see how a person who has no desire for holiness can be saved, right? Uh, the whole concept between becoming to Christ is that you're broken over your sinful condition. You want forgiveness, you want pardon, and you want a new life. Now, if you don't want forgiveness, you don't want pardon, you're not concerned about your sin, uh, I don't see what your motive would be for salvation. If you're looking for fire escape, is salvation not just a fire escape? Okay, that you just you just want to not go to hell, but you're not concerned about anything beyond that. Well, that's not what the genuine salvation is all about. Salvation is about repentance of your sin, brokenness before God, and your desire to follow the Lord and to become more Christ-like. If you don't have that kind of a desire, I think you are living a phantom life and a, 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 a futile belief to, to think otherwise. A question that has come in from Codrington here in Antigua. Pastor, God told us to love our enemies and to do good to those who persecute us. Why would God allow our enemies to suffer in hell when he tells us to love our enemies? Shouldn't he just love them too and spare them the suffering and just destroy them right away instead of them going through so much suffering in hell? I think the problem with you, sir, is that you are using human reasoning. You do not understand the infinite price that God gave when he gave his son. You don't understand the true sufferings of Christ. God did everything to avoid man going to hell. He has given us his word. He has sent prophet after prophet, apostle after apostle, messenger after messenger. And all the attempts to bring man to repentance and faith, man remains a rebel. Last of all, when man had bypassed all of these different means, God sent his son to die on the cross. 
And by the way, if there was no hell, I don't believe there would be a cross of Christ and Christ's death on the cross. That's how serious this matter is. Man has to understand that there is a God, there's a creator. He got to understand that this God is a holy God, a just God, and this God cannot stand sin and iniquity. But this same God that is so holy loves man enough to send his son to suffer and die in man's place so that man can be forgiven. And God gives man an ultimatum. God gives man a choice. You repent and put your faith and trust in in my son, or you rebel against my salvation, you rebel against my son, and you go to hell. So who chooses then? Who makes that choice? God respects our right to make choices because we are moral beings. And so while it would, like you and I, um, you know, that we can just pardon sin and forgive sin because we ourselves are so sinful, (laughs) we don't have the slightest idea what it is to be a holy, sinless God who cannot even look upon sin. So we are trying to judge God by our own standard. We have created a God after our own image, and that's the ultimate idolatry. We've got to go to Scripture, let the Scripture explain who God is, and not try to comprehend God to a natural understanding, which is depraved and fallen, but to take God's Word and begin to uh, evaluate God and, and, and let the, the basis of God's character uh, be based on Scripture and not human thinking and human reasoning. Remember his thoughts and not our thoughts, or his ways and not our ways. So we make the biggest mistake when we think God is like us. When we do that, we have created the God in our own image, which is idolatry, which God condemns. The God of the Bible is the God who God reveals himself to be. And we must not try to make him into our own image. We must respect and reverence him as the God that's presented in the Word. Thank you for your question, Codrington. Thank you to each of you who have sent in a question this evening. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 268 782 We still have... 19 minutes left in this episode, so plenty of time for you to send in your question. If you don't have WhatsApp or text, you can call 1-268-462-7420. We can't put you live on the air, but you can speak with Sister Marianne. She'll get your question. She'll type it out for me and pass it along. Or you can join us on Facebook. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video feed. And then in the comment section, you can comment your question for Pastor Murphy. Pastor, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26... Is Paul teaching that homosexuals should not be heterosexuals because it is unnatural for them? And let me just read that verse to set the context. Romans chapter 1 verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Yeah, well, this is part of the twisting of Scripture that the Bible warns against. And remember, in, uh, Peter says that there's some people who twist the teachings of Paul to their own destruction. And this is part of what is called the gay theology today, that they take verses of Scripture, which is so clearly understood, and they try to make it into something other than what the Bible teaches in order to endorse their sinful lifestyle. And this is one of the passages that they... Um, 
they use. And basically, what they're saying is that what Paul is teaching here uh, is not that people are... Um, in other words, what, what, what he was saying here is that Paul is not condemning people who were born homosexual. Paul is condemning people who were not born homosexual that are practicing homosexuality. So they are basically trying to say that it's unnatural for a homosexual uh, not to be gay, but it is, um, it is, sorry, it is natural for homosexual to be gay. But it's unnatural for a non-heterosexual to be homosexual. So what Paul is condemning here is not the homosexual lifestyle uh, of people who are born gay. He's condemning people who are born heterosexual, who are engaged in homosexual activity. That's the, the, the most distorted, twisted scripture again. But you can see the reasoning behind it because they want, they're engaged in an activity that is bothering their conscience. No question about that. God has created male and female. God has made uh, just two genders. God has created marriage uh, between a, ma- a man and a, a man and a, and a woman. But these are people who are engaged in in activity that is completely contrary to Scripture. Now they're tracing the Scripture so that it supports what they want uh, to practice. Uh, so that that is what the, uh, the this this Scripture is used for. But there's no biblical basis whatsoever. Uh, to, to take that interpretation. And besides that, by the way, the book of Leviticus, when the Bible condemns homosexuality in Leviticus, you know what they say? That he's condemning uh, people who are in the priesthood, basically, uh, engaging in, sec- in homosexuality, but not people who are born gay, etc., etc. This is part of the distortion that is going on today, and it is surprising that some within the church have actually fallen for this myth, and who, in order to, to, to try to be lovey-dovey to everybody and every uh, every every di- diverse group, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, are ignoring the clear teaching of Scripture and uh, siding with these people and naturally um, allowing people to be gay, coming to the church, become members of the church. But not only members. You know, got gay preachers, you got gay pastors, see. Uh, but again, the Bible is very, very clear on this matter that uh, homosexuality is wrong, it's an abomination. It is condemned both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those people who in, in, engage in this kind of uh, teaching uh, and uh, this kind of distortion would pay the ultimate price uh, for deceiving other people and distorting Scripture. You must not add to Scripture or take away from Scripture, and you must not twist the Scriptures according to what Peter says. But there are people today who are doing exactly this. A question that has come in from a listener in Antigua. Pastor Murphy, I have a concern and I need your advice. The Baptist church that I got saved in back in 1974, we always had an issue when it comes to the Adventist church. There is an issue now where the now pastor is allowing an Adventist friend, a woman, to come and talk on a book about Adventist things. And an elder stood up in the church and spoke against it. And right now the church is split in two because some people believe that he should not have allowed an Adventist to come and have a book dis- 
disturbing the church, and others believe the book should be read and then judge accordingly. What is your take, Pastor Murphy? I think the pastor has not made a good judgment. I think he might end up splitting the church, and I think this is probably what's going to happen in a situation like that. Uh, when you have uh, churches that hold such divergent doctrine, uh, you have to be very, very careful what you allow, et cetera, et cetera. And as you know, Baptists have been separatists for a long, long time. And when we say separatists, we hold to certain clear, very doctrines. And when we see that there's a deviant movement, especially when, in regards to like salvation, there's no question in my mind that Adventists believe that keeping the law is going to save them. Uh, that, that, to my mind, is one of the greatest errors that uh, Paul dealt with that in the book of Galatians. The people deal with that in Acts chapter 15. No matter what they say, you listen to them, ultimately, it's about keeping the Sabbath. And that is very clearly, the inf- when you think of the Sabbath, the Adventist Church, you don't think of Christ. I don't think of Christ. I think of the Sabbath. It is a distraction as far as I am concerned. And I think the pastor made a tremendous mistake. Now, suppose he had brought in a Seventh-day Adventist doctor to talk about medical uh, medical things like health and stuff like that. That may be something that the church uh, might consider. But again, he has no should not even, even bring in a person like that unless he has sat with the church and explained to the church what his intentions are and get the feedback from the church. You're ministering to people. And if I was going to do that and the people in our church said, Pastor, we don't think that's a good idea, it would be a fool for pastor to ignore the congregation and bring somebody like that into the church. And I think he's going to pay the ultimate price for that because I don't think that is good judgment. And uh, it might be an indication that he's allowed friendship to override his better judgment in dealing with the church. So I think that's a big mistake, and I don't think that should be done. And then discussing uh, the teaching or the doctrine of the Adventists uh, within the church setting that again, it creates too much confusion within the, the whole matter. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, that I don't believe that there's some people in the Adventist pe- church that are saved. But you cannot be saved if you believe that the keeping the Sabbath is going to save you. That is work salvation. We believe in salvation by grace. But that is being pushed again and again and again and again and again. As a matter of fact, I think if you took away the Sabbath, I don't know if you got a Seventh-day Adventist church, to be honest with you, because that is the main thing to push, 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 push. That's a distinctive feature. And I think that's a massive mistake that he has made. And I think that uh, he might find that the, the general congregation is going to rebel against that. And it's a very sad thing that he has not used better judgment in, in that regard. I don't know how he can salvage that now uh, without perhaps uh, coming back to the people and saying, look, I made a misjudgment on this matter. I should have spoken to you first as a church. Remember, the, the pastor doesn't own the church. Please remember that, okay? It's the congregation that calls the pastor and holds the pastor accountable. And he just can't ignore the sentiments of the people and disregard the people. Because who will he minister to afterward <laughs> if he does that? So he has to be very wise. And if there's any dispute on a matter of that nature, he should discuss it with the church, get the sentiments that's being expressed. And if he finds it's going to create division within the church, he'll be a fool to bring that division within the church. It doesn't make sense to me that he would have done something of that nature. 
Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.49. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 kHz AM, 92.3 MHz FM, and online at radiolighthouse.org. And if you are listening from Antigua, I just want to make you aware, you maybe have already heard the announcement on the air, but starting as of September 1st, which is this Friday, Our FM frequency will be English 24 hours a day. We are discontinuing the Spanish programming. And if you would like to continue to listen to that Spanish programming, you can go to the BBN radio website. You can just Google that and we will, uh, that is available to you free of charge. Again, uh, as of Friday, we will be broadcasting English 24 hours a day here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on both 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. And we look forward to that uninterrupted English platform on all three of our platforms uh, as of September 1st. We are thankful to have Pastor Murphy back in the program, back in the studio tonight, and we have uh, a question. Uh, another one? Uh, no. Okay. Um, we want to talk about some symbols that are used to describe uh, the Bible in the Scriptures. So, because it limited time, there's another subject I want to deal with, but I'll deal with that next time. Okay. So, what are some of these symbols uh, that are used? Uh, to describe the Bible in the, uh, in the Scriptures. And uh, I just want to mention about 10 of them, quite frankly, and try to explain why what's the significance of these symbols. Um, if you look at uh, Psalm 43, verse 3, Nathan. Psalm 43, verse 3 says, O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and unto thy tabernacles. Right, and if you look at Second Peter 1, 19, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 says, I feel like I should know this. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Yeah, you notice in both of those texts, in uh, Psalm 43 verse 3 and Second Peter chapter 1 verse 19, it's, it's conferring, com, uh, comparing the, the word to light. Uh, this is one of the great symbols in the scripture that is used to describe the scripture itself. And of course, as light, there are two two features that uh, are emphasized here. Number one, light reveals, and that's the thing about the Bible, it reveals truth. But not only that, light is also a guide. It, it gives guidance and there's a lamp onto our feet and light onto our path. So that is one of the, 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 uh, the, the expressions that's used in the scripture. The other thing about light in the Bible is that it always talks about holiness, that scripture is God's holy word that leads us into a life of holiness. So one of the great symbols is this image of light that is used again and again, Old Testament, New Testament, symbolizing the Bible as a guide, it reveals truth, and that it actually is a book that leads to holiness. Another one is found in uh, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. Jer- Sorry, Jeremiah 23, verse uh, 29 or 39, I can't, uh, Let me try 29. 23, 29 says, Is not my word yeah, like a fire? It. 
saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock into pieces? Yeah, there are two, two aspects here when his word is now compared, two other symbols, one compared to hammer and one compared to fire. Of course, a hammer is something that, 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 that breaks and brings conviction, and uh, that's, that's the, the idea of the word again. It, it brings conviction and it also brings, it breaks the heart, and uh, then it pours in the oil and the wine, basically the balsam to bring about healing. And then it is like fire. Fire, two aspects of it. It consumes sin. And David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart, and I not sin against thee. And also, fire stirs up the heart. It is a symbol of zeal, etc. So, again, not only is light as a hammer, but also is fire stirring up zeal and uh, consuming sin. If you also look at Hebrews 4, verse 12, and Ephesians six 17, you'll find another symbol that is used in respect to the word. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And then Ephesians 6.17. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the two aspects to the sword. First of all, it's dividing of the heart of Sunday. It brings conviction. And the word of God is used as the main instrument of bringing in conviction. That's why when it comes to conversion, the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses is the word. So that's why you must preach the gospel and preach the word, because there must be conviction of the Holy Spirit before a person can be saved. But that conviction can only come as the word of God penetrates that person's heart under the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it's a weapon of warfare. Uh, Paul is talking in Ephesians chapter 6 about the, the warfare that we're going to have against principalities and powers. And he tells us that one of the instruments that must be used is the sword. And remember that when our Lord was engaged in spiritual warfare in Matthew chapter 4, when he was in the wilderness tempted by the devil, remember the weapon he used foremost every time, it is written, it is written, it is written. He didn't argue with Satan, he just presented the facts of Scripture and told him what the Scripture said. And Satan himself quoted Scripture and he corrected the interpretation of that. He said, huh, yeah, but it said you should not tempt the Lord thy God. So Satan has the capacity to even twist Scripture. But our Lord has the correct interpretation in that regard. So it's a sword, which is a weapon of warfare. It's also a sword that brings conviction. And then, Should we take that same approach then when we are debating with a unbeliever co-worker or someone who's on the bus who is throwing devil advocate questions at us that yeah. we should just stick with Scripture? I think that one of the best things we can do, uh, and I know sometimes we feel intimidated because somebody seems to be winning the argument, and especially when people are wrong listening to, to us, we might feel uh, somewhat that he's using more intellectual language, he's using more research information, etc., etc. But I do think that it is there's power in just saying, listen, this is what the Bible says, point blank, and I settle on this particular matter. Don't get into any arguments where you don't have the, the, the capacity to argue at the same level. But again, remember, uh, Nathan, that the effect of the word sometimes is not immediate. That person goes home, and like anything, if you've been in an argument with anybody, you might think you've won it, but there's something about a person that speaks to you with sincerity, but have conviction. You can't get away from that. You you might win the argument, but when you get in your sober moment and really think about it, that's when the impact will happen. So just give in the Word and let the Word do that work, that inner work, let the Holy Spirit have something to work with in dealing with that person. Uh, another thing, another one is Psalm 119, verse 105. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, let's 
It's a long way to scroll down. A lot of verses. Psalm 119, 105. The word, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto yeah. my path. Here's another symbol. We talked about light already, but here's another one, lamp. And uh, if you're people are aware of the Old Testament practice, you know, they didn't have street lights and we have street lights, but we are told by those who are accustomed and aware of the customs in the Old Testament that when you're going through a, a, long, a dark path, uh, what you do, you, you there's kind of a lamp you strap onto your feet, so it goes forward behold, before you. It's not they're holding the lamp in your in your thing, but you're watching as you move, so you can see how to step. So here it's talking about uh, God's word guiding you step by step, not just showing you the, the broad path, but leading you step by step. So that's another uh, symbol of the word. And then Ephesians five twenty six is another symbol that is used. Uh, of Scripture that emphasizes another aspect of the power of God's Word. Ephesians 5 and verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. Again, notice another symbol. We all know that what water does. In, in this particular case, it's a work of cleansing. And, uh, of course, water also refreshes you as well. So all of these are symbols that we find in Scripture that emphasize a different aspect of God's Word. And water is one of those as well. Just a quick message that is coming from St. Kitts. Welcome back, Pastor Murphy. I'm happy to have you back in the hot seat. <laughs> and I missed hearing your voice. Blessings upon blessings. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That's Truth. And we hope that you will not only have a good evening, but that you will tune in next Tuesday evening for another episode of That's Truth. And Lord willing, we'll have Pastor Murphy back to continue his biblical teaching. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's Truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.